Good morning, everyone. My name is Claire, and I'm now caller. And I'm grateful to be sober and a proud member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to thank Charles and the committee for asking me to come and share my experience, strength, and hope with you, which is always a privilege and an honor to be asked to participate in any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to thank Mike and Neil who picked me up at the airport, and it's been lovely uh, meeting Julie and... Um, and, and I'd like to thank all of you for your warm hospitality. I always know where I am when I get the privilege to travel and um, and share these conferences around us. And I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and I know what hospitality is, and I always look forward to it when I'm uh, in this vicinity. And you see a lot of friends uh, and renew our friendships from past times when I've been over here. Um, one more time... I, I would like to welcome the newcomer. If you're out there, I saw the countdown last night, and I'm always thrilled when I see that. And I love your um, your theme, um, no, there is a solution, because I saw a lot of newcomers here last night. And I welcome you to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I hope you'll keep coming back with an open mind and join us. One of my favorite readings in the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the basic text of our program, uh, in the back of the book is called The Spiritual Experience. And at the end of that reading, it says, Contempt prior to investigation will leave a man in everlasting ignorance. So welcome and keep coming back. Uh, by the time I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was a, um, a wineette. And in the big book, in chapter 3, more about alcoholism, which explains the insane things that we sometimes continue to do to keep from doing step 1, 2, and 3. And it lists the insanity, and one of those insanities for me was that, you know, it says you, we switch to natural wine. <laughs> well, I had switched to ripple. <laughs> and that's not one of the natural wines. <laughs> I mean, man, I don't think a single grape has ever been in that stuff. <laughs> they put some chemicals in a bottle and they shook it up real hard. I used to say that they put a little Kool-Aid in it to give it some color. So I had a choice between the red ripple and the white ripple. <laughs> and there I was. I ended up after 27 years of daily drinking. I ended up in the ghetto of South Central Los Angeles doing a dance with death. And sometimes it was still in the paper bag. And I had to take my two younger children uh, on that journey to that ghetto. And every time I share that, there's a part of me that, that feels sad that they had to take that journey with a, with a drunken mother who couldn't get sober and who couldn't even get drunk anymore because alcohol had stopped working for me. I had signed up for welfare, living off food stamps. I had drawn the drapes, and I am sure I was going to die of this disease and didn't even know I was an alcoholic. I knew that everything and everybody around me had deserted me, and there I was sitting there trying to figure out you know, what was going to happen to my life and why I couldn't recapture that magic of that first martini 27 years before that in Boston, Massachusetts. I just could not figure out what went wrong. I'd come out of those blackouts, and I'm a real alcoholic, the kind that's described in the book. Uh, I would come out of blackouts by that time, at the end of my drinking. In the last two or three years, I was in constant blackouts because I was drinking around the clock. Um, at around 10 or 11 o'clock at night, sitting in an overstuffed chair with a terrycloth robe on. And I used to wear this bright red wig. <laughs> <laughs> they had bangs. <laughs> and I'd snap two hours out of this blackout, and the wig would sometimes be on sideways. <laughs> And I'm one who came from the jazz world, Boston, New York, Holland, and L.A., and who lived in that glamorous world for a lot of years. 
And I couldn't believe it when I looked in that mirror and that wig would be on sideways and, and I could hear my heart pounding like a drum. And my, it would pound so hard sometimes it would seem as if my heart would explode from pain. And I knew what I always needed when I was in that state. I needed to get out of that chair and I needed to get over to the nearest sleazy bar. You know, in the good book of Alcoholics Anonymous and the vision for you, there's a, there's a part that says some of us start sundry places looking for um, understanding, companionship, and um, approval. And that's what I needed because nobody else understood me. So I'd get dressed and get over to and crawl up on one of those stools and sit there and stare into that back mirror from the end of the other bar drinkers. You know, probably feeling like that song about Eleanor Rigby, wondering where all those other lonely people were coming from. And this is, you know, alcoholism is, is part of our, our, our loneliness, is part of our, our, our disease. And I see the reflection of other faces looking in that mirror, and I'm sure they were in their fantasies as I always was in mine, that tomorrow is going to be better. Um, I met a lot of them. Um, out of work airline pilots <laughs> <laughs> sitting on those other stools. Uh, once in a while I'd meet a, a neurosurgeon <laughs> who used to tell me things like they were on vacation. <laughs> I remember one night I'm sitting there and at my left, uh, I should never forget this, there was a very attractive young man and at the time, he was probably about 30 years old, 27, 28, 30, somewhere around that age. And he looked at me and smiled, and he took a sip off of his drink, and he introduced himself. And he told me he was a retired lieutenant colonel <laughs> in the United States Air Force. <laughs> and I was really impressed because he was so young to be retired. <laughs> and then he said, actually, he said, I'm a U-2 pilot. Well, at the time, I didn't know what a U2 pilot was. <laughs> and we looked around, up and down the bar, very nervous all the time, and uh, I was sure we were in for a military secret. Just looking up and down the bar, you know, and... And finally, whispered in my ear, he said, uh, last night, actually, he said, um, I, 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 do, I do fly all over the world, and last night I flew over Russia. And I looked at him, I knew I had a lead case on my hand this time, and, um... I said, I know, darling, because I was with you. <laughs> and that's the way we're going to the end of the, <clears throat> the legal drinking hour. And by the end of the legal drinking hour, we, we were usually legends <laughs> in our own heads. And then I would find myself later on at that awful hour of the morning, three and four and five o'clock, six o'clock in the morning, coming to in a seen position in tall wet grass in front of the little place where I lived. Feeling that feeling they talked about in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous about pitiful and comprehensible demoralization. And trying to figure how I'd ever come from that place to being in tall wet grass. Uh, and it, it always seemed so, so, so cold and it always seemed so dark and it seemed darkest, you know, right before dawn. And in California, in the tall um, palm trees, in the springtime every year, night birds come out and they stay out all summer till the fall and then they just disappear. And I could hear the sound of these birds not singing but calling and squawking back and forth to each other. I'm making deals with God and in that area when I was there, um, dogs travel in, in packs because these dogs were not owned by anyone. They were just street dogs. And some of those litters had been dropped in, the, in storefronts where the doors had long since been removed. And I'm sure the property, the property owners of, of those commercial properties, you know, had given up and, and abandoned those, those buildings. Some of those dogs were born in the back alleys in some of that tall grass. And they scoured the food late at night when you're living under those conditions and in those areas. It's all about survival. 
know, the pets and, the, and human beings all trying to survive. In those days, there were little trash cans out on the sidewalk, and it would take several of the dogs to push the can into the street, and I could still hear the zing of the lid as it would hit the street, and it would roll, and it seemed at an hour of the morning, the quietness of the whole world was asleep, and I'm down in the grass making deals with God that I didn't believe in if you just get me off the ground this morning. My favorite alcoholic prayer was, I will never do this again. I will never get this drunk. I will never go over there. I will do this and I will do that. And I knew in my heart, you know, I always wanted that to be true, but I somehow couldn't understand that when I took a drink, the drink took me, and then I gave it the power because I couldn't stop drinking. But I'd get up off that ground in the face of that pretty little daughter of mine who was only about eight years old at the time would come before me, and I could see her eyes and the disappointment in her eyes when she looked at me, a mother who, who, who lied to her constantly. You know, you know um, Wayne talked about uh, the doctor's opinion, and then there the, is a line that says, you know, there comes a time when we can't differentiate the difference between the truth and the false. You know, I lied so much because I couldn't tell the truth. I no longer knew what the truth was. And she said to me, you look at, you, you, you always, you know, you always lie to me. You always promised me you'd come into the PTA meeting and you never show up. All my friends' parents come and you get drunk. You know, and I'd look at that little girl and I would want to say to her, but you don't understand. When I take that drink, I can't get there. But I didn't want to admit to myself that that was the, that was the, the cause that I couldn't keep my promise to my little daughter. But I did, I'd stand up in that yard and try to brush the dew off my shoulders, straighten up that wig, look around, see who's looking, looking good, almost kill me out there. <laughs> <laughs> I assure you, nobody was interested in me, a drunk woman in the front yard in the ghetto of South Central Los Angeles at any hour of the day or night. And I'm standing up there, you know, trying to look cute. I have been, you know, I, in the darkness of the morning, I haven't been cute for a long time by now. And I, but there, I don't know about you guys, but there was a lady that lived directly across the street from me, and I don't think that woman ever slept. And I never met her because I didn't go to, to the ghetto to become socially accepted in the community. Uh, but I knew she was there, and I, you know, we talk, they, we talk about the alcoholic ego, and I always, you can figure she was watching me. I don't know whether she was or not, but that's the way, you know, I felt. But I've learned an alcoholic to know that feelings are not facts. And I would look across there, and I, could, I knew she was there because I could see a curtain moving. Now I'm standing out there all cute again, you know, and I look over there, and I see the curtains moving. I did her a thing. <laughs> And then I turn around and, you know, walk straight. God forbid she should think I'm drunk. <laughs> and I'd get up those steps, you know, and I'd open that door and I'd get inside and I'd lean on that door and I was dying. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually dying. And I was, by, by that time, I was um, drinking all my meals. I wasn't eating anymore, and I don't know this time I'm so sick. And I'm ready to charge down the hall because I don't know whether this time it's going to be blood or that green vial. Get to the bathroom, get on my knees in front of the toilet bowl, do a few chin-ups on the rim. That person is cold in the morning. And Chen is just sliding around on that rim and I'm trying to find a comfortable place to rest. And it was seen to me in some of those terrible moments of my life that I was going to just throw up my very soul. Then I'd get up off, the, off that floor, you know. I don't know if you've ever been in that um, situation when you come out of a blackout, the, the, the room is spinning. And there I am, you know, trying to stop the spin and lean against that cold porcelain down there. And the two words that would always greet me as I tried to uh, stop the spin was American standard. <laughs> Good dress to make the run. Made those, promised that little son of mine, that little daughter, that I wasn't going to go down to the liquor store. Mom was not going down there tomorrow. See, everything was about tomorrow. I couldn't do anything today. Couldn't deal with it today. 
But I, you know, that phenomenal craving that Dr. Stoker talks about that we suffer from, that began in the next thing, the insanity in my mind, which whispered to me, what you really need is a drink. So I get up and put on my tight jeans over those, uh, that 65 pound overweight body, put on a bad leather jacket, shove on my dog glasses, put on some starlight earrings that hung in my shoulders, and by this time my mode of transportation was a pair of gold fuzzy house slippers. <laughs> and I'd slip into my slippers and pass the door and get to the front door and open it quietly and sneak down the steps feeling like a thief in the night. Cross the street, past three houses, get down on the avenue. Lean on the door, wait for the man to come. Watching the lights in those dark mornings and the winter mornings when, the, when it was still dark out and, and seeing people go off to work, you know, and, and, and be responsible human beings and taking care of their families and the people they love and being of some value to the community. And I've been there, done that. I drank away a very successful career, business, house, cars, everything was gone. And I'm leaning on the door wondering where all my, you know, uh, fair-weather friends were. The ones who didn't call me anymore and say, when are we going to lunch? You know, Bill Wilson, the co-founder of our program, and I believe this program is divine, was divinely inspired. And when Bill Wilson talked about his fair-weather friends, and finally I'd stand, stand there leaning on the door, and the man would come, and I'd, he'd open that door, and I'd follow him into the liquor store and stand at the counter and watch him put the change away. There's something about clerks, especially in that, in that, in that neighborhood where I was at the time, uh, they seemed very bored very early in the morning, and sometimes I was usually the only customer. And um, he'd say things to me after get the change put away. What do you think was this morning, sweetheart? And then, you know, I always knew how to play the games in life. I just didn't know how to live it. And, and I didn't want him to think that I was drinking all this uh, ripple. And I say little cutesy things like, well, um, I'll have my favorite this morning, but it's not for me. I have house guests. And he'd lean on the counter with his elbow and he'd have it in the paper bag and he'd play with the paper at the top of the bag and he'd look at me and say, you serve your house guests ripple? And I'd just take it out of his hand because I couldn't stand the pain, you know, of a... You know, I'm starting, I need a drink right now, and I only be playing with him. And I'd get out that front door and get past the little plate glass window, <clears throat> go around on the side, and lean on the building. It had come to that. And I didn't have to worry about popping cocktail uh, napkins and stirs and, and bottle openers and soft music and the smiling faces of handsome men. So I didn't have to worry about that anymore. Just take a hit off that wine. Dr. Silkworth says we drink essentially because we, 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 we got love the effect produced by alcohol. And it, it wasn't about the effect anymore for me. It was about staying alive. I, had to, I was drinking just to stay alive. Get back to that house, sit in that overstuffed chair, watch the dawn really come up and hear two kids come out of a dirty bedroom to go into a dirty kitchen to fix their own breakfast and their own lunch. And I'm staring out of the window, probably feeling like the man who said I had a dream last night, that life was passing me by, and I was no longer in the dreams of life. I'm sitting in a chair dying. They go off to school, and we tell our stories in general, what it used to be like, what happened, and what it's like today. Because I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Wonderful parents. My mother and father were not alcoholics and are not responsible for the fact that I'm an alcoholic. Uh, I'm the youngest of seven children, and I am the only alcoholic in that family. My brothers and sisters did not and do not drink. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that I was born one of the ones that, uh, that was restless, irritable, and discontented right out of the chute. Probably could have used a little drinky pool. <laughs> in the first grade just to get me to the second grade. Alcohol always got me to the next step. Um, I, I, and my father, well, you know, I talk about my father a lot because he was a real influence in my life. And I grew up in a very religious family, had a lot of problems with my mother, and I have nothing against um, uh, religion today. I studied the book, and I certainly 
have made a lot of peace in, in, in the chapter of the we agnostics, uh, but I was really afraid of God based on what my perception of what it was when I was growing up. And I also learned from many inventories I had a lot of, of anger about my parents because it was my perception of them. And when I did that inventory, I found a lot that, that I need to point that finger at me and not at them. Um, so there I was uh, uh, in Atlanta. My father was a full-blooded Cherokee Indian. And he was born on a reservation in Cherokee, North Carolina. That, that reservation is still there. And when he was 20 or uh, 21 years old, he moved to, to Georgia, met my mom, and, uh, and had these children. We had a wonderful life. He was very successful. He was an artist and an entrepreneur. We had all of those outside privileges and all those things that were supposed to make us all fit and be somebody. The other thing we got in the message, and I and um, and I didn't get the message on how to be somebody until I got to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, <clears throat> I um, won an art scholarship uh, when I was a senior at Booker T. Washington High School in Atlanta. That took me out of Atlanta, and I can remember sitting on a segregated train, waving my finger at Atlanta, and saying, "I love Atlanta today." But I mean, when I was leaving there, I was saying, "Oh man, I'm never coming back to this place." Because I'm not, I don't like authority. I don't like people telling me when to stand and when to sit. And that went for the church, school, and everybody else. And I was always in trouble. And I can remember my, my dear parents saying to me, Claire, why don't you act like other people? Well, they, I know now that I didn't feel like other people, apparently. And I just couldn't act that way. I acted out what I was feeling with anger and rage and, and that feeling of impending doom at a very early age. And I, until this day, don't know what that was about. And today it doesn't really matter. Uh, when I got to Boston, uh, I, I thought it was going to be different. When it never occurred to me that, uh, that I was taking them with me. And that nothing was going to change. And that wherever I went, as long as I took that with me, that's the way I was going to feel. But I went with a lot of secrets. And I was mad before the alcoholic and I say one night, you know, we are as sick as our secrets. And I want to tell you something. I had some, some real heavy secrets. Because one of them was that, you know, coming from that Baptist background where I had never had a date, I was not allowed to wear makeup, I was not allowed to listen to music, and if you thought about it, that was a sin, if you did it, you doomed. And, uh, and so I, I went with that kind of mentality and thinking, but I always wanted to be a singer or a performer. Now, I don't know how I got into that with another fantasy, because I can't sing and I can't dance. But I just, you know, I just thought it would look good, you know. So, here I am in this art school, and I don't really want to be there. I took one look at that situation and said, I don't think so. And uh, so I started going to movies. I'd never been allowed to go to a movie. So I, was, I was, became addicted to, to cutting school and hanging in movies and watching people on the screen live. And that I love this music. I used to play jazz records in the closet because I figured God wouldn't see me in the closet. I mean, you know, and uh, and and I wouldn't be spinning in the closet. And um, <laughs> so, uh, so uh, one night I'm, I'm walking down the street. Georgia was a dry state. I was listening to Jimmy. You know, I've been with Jimmy before. And Georgia was a dry state when I grew up there, and uh, I never seen alcohol. I didn't know what existed on the planet Earth, and. And I'm walking down, and I hear this music, and I went with another student, and I said, let's go in there and see what they're doing. I want to hear the music. They walk in there, and it was a jazz club, and I had no idea. You know, when I was in Sunday school, they used to talk about places like the Den of Iniquity. <laughs> and I had no idea what that was, but when I walk in there, and this place is dimly lit, and the aroma of cigarettes and booze, and down at the end of the bar was this rather portly lady, and she's grinding out that... that soulful music, my heart is pounding like, I just pounding, and with excitement, it's called living on the edge. You know, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm a bumper sticker watcher, and in Los Angeles, um, I was driving through Beverly Hills recently, and the car ahead of me had a bumper sticker that said, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. <laughs> So I'm, I'm, my heart is pounding, and this bartender leans over. I sat on the stool, and he said, "What are you gonna have to drink?" And I didn't know. But I remember in the movies they always talk about martinis, and I was about to commit my first hip slip cool act. 
I leaned on that bar and looked at that dude straight in the eye, and I said, we'll have a martini, honey. I said, make it dry. I have no idea what a dry martini was. <laughs> He leans, he, he leans over with this can and he puts these uh, two lovely stem glasses and he evened it out and it looked like lemonade and I didn't know you sip drinks. So I pick it up, you know, it's hot in Georgia in the summertime and we used to drink a lot of lemonade. This stuff looked just like it and I just dumped it. <laughs> Pig from the gate. Uh, I remember, I, I remember the way it made me feel. I had a glass still in my hand. I strolled out on the lip, on, the, on the dance floor, and I and I had never had a date, as I said. And they were all dancing, and I got so excited. And right away, you know, I got myself some new friends who had never had a friend. And I called them colorful, but the big book calls them little companions. <laughs> and I I hooked up with the pimps, the hookers, the madams, and the bad boys. And I learned how to walk the walk and talk the talk. And I never dreamed of where that, that first martini was going to take me and what a journey it was because right away I loved those clubs and a lot of you are very young, but some of you probably remember when jazz was the, uh, the music media of the country. And it was a time, it was a time when I could walk into any club and see the likes of the late great legend Billy Holiday. And uh, Dinah Washington and Miles Davis and Sarah Vaughn and, and they were all in those clubs in those days and I remember hanging out with Billy Armstrong and then I started going to breakfast with, with Billy Holiday and it's, it's not name dropping, it's really part of my story. And that's how I got involved in, in the jazz world and um, I met a nice young man one night and we started dating and then we got married and he came from a very nice family in Boston. And we liked the same things, and we probably had the same background because he didn't know anything about drinking and, and as we call it, nightlife. And we did it together, and we stayed in that really sick relationship for 24 years. And, and it's because we were just, I have learned that through some inventory on that relationship. I've done inventories on relationships, uh, every relationship I've had in, in, in my life, uh, in alcoholics anonymous that has caused me pain. And my behavior has caused other people pain. So, and in that relationship, I, I you know, it, what came out was that it was just two uh, people in the bodies of adults with the emotions of two five-year-old kids who refused to grow up and take responsibility for their own lives. And we had this little boy and shoved him off on his grandparents to raise him because I was too busy. See, I'm too busy in the streets now and I'm living that life. And I'm hopping over in New York and I'm in Harlem and I'm out there in the crest of, uh, of what I might always refer to the height of my magical experience in life. And uh, so I was, uh, <clears throat> would have to go over and visit that little boy from, some, from time to time, you know, because I felt so guilty. There's something about our behavior, you know, that uh, we are always filled with guilt about whatever it is. And, and so there I was trying to do something with this kid and I'd go there and he'd look at me and he'd say, but mom, you promised me the last time you came to visit me, you know, you'd take me to the park. And you know, and I would want to do that, but I couldn't. And I'd have to climb back in that car and go back downtown. There's a paragraph in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that describes my behavior when it says, selfishness and self-centeredness, we think, is the root of our troubles. And it goes on in that paragraph to say that we are driven people, and we are driven by a hundred forms of fear. Self-illusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, and I could have added to my list of fears, add in for many more things. And you know, they grow up, and by this time I'm really out there, and we talk about, I always talk about that feeling of that deep, dark hole inside, and it didn't matter how much money I had, or who I was hanging out with, you know, the hole kept getting darker and, and I kept getting more insane in my behavior and I wanted more. I'm one of those people that I've learned in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous that I have an addictive personality and I can get addicted to anything that I feel will bring me pleasure and make me feel good. And I wanted more. I'm probably, you know, I, I tease my friends in L.A. 
you know, that when I was born, when the doctor smacked me on the bomb, a little bomb, and, and I probably yelled, more, you know, and, <laughs> I, I, you know I, I just, you know, never had enough of <laughs> I never had enough of anything. And, uh, and this husband traveled a lot, so I'm looking for somebody who has a lot more money and who's going to really take care of me. And I'm sitting on a bar stool in an after-hour joint, and I was helping to finance. So you see, when the legal hour for the clubs to close, I was never through. So I had to go on because, you know, I had, I had to wait till the sun came up before I was through. And I'm here financing this place. I'm sitting there drinking with Billy Holiday one morning, and this guy shows up in front of me. And if you look, I have known this guy, Mr. Wonderful. I have never met him. If you hang in those places long enough, you meet them. They show up. And I look up, and here he stands. This guy's got a black hat turned down all the way around. He's got a top coat over his shoulders. He's so cool, he can't get his arms through the sleeves. You know? And uh, <laughs> he looked at me, and he closed his one eye, and he smiled, and he had this lot of money, and he peeled off ten $100 bills. He spread it on the top of the bar like a deck of cards, and he whispered, spend it. Now, I told you I didn't believe in God, but... <laughs> I had it certainly has my print on this one. <laughs> and I was already into step two because by now I'm totally insane. And when step two says that God will restore society, by God's grace, you know, that has happened for me in Alcoholics Anonymous. But at that time, I was nuts because this man turned out to be the head of the mafia of the Boston family. And I began to learn what it was like to ride in the mafioso limousine with bodyguards. And it was a lifestyle that was to last for a long time. Until one morning on a beautiful Sunday morning like this, I look at you now and your smiling faces, and I feel as if I'm standing in the sunlight of the Spirit. At that time, I was sitting in the back of the limousine with the mob members, and and that limousine came to a stoplight. And I looked out across the street, and, the, and there were young families standing on the corner with their little kids about to cross the street to go into this beautiful New England church. And, I, and their kids were all dressed so beautifully. And I remembered my little son was 10 years old, and now I'm too ashamed to go and visit him. It was easier to buy him more toys and send him to better camps, more expensive clothes. never occurred to me that I had no idea what it was like to go and nurture him and touch him and tell that little boy I loved him. You know what? I just couldn't do it. And um, something said to me quietly, Claire, something is wrong with your life. And I agreed as I stared out that window. The problem is Boston. <laughs> you know, if I just get out of Boston, get away from these hoods, get away from these mags and the hookers and my friends, and go to California and start a new life, things will be different. We picked that kid up, put him in the back of the car. I talked to my husband, and he agreed that that would be the best plan for us. We moved to the Los Angeles area. When it was good intentions, my intentions were always good until I had the first drink. And my intention was to be a better, uh, uh, to be a good mother to this little boy. And um, we had two more children. We went into a small maintenance business. Property management and maintenance business got somewhat successful, and we did try to do better. We didn't do as much as we'd done out there in the, in the club areas we'd done in the past, and it was better. And But, you know, my alcoholism was progressing now to that point where I was getting out of control. And I remember my brothers and sisters who had all lived on the East, uh, in, in, the, in the New York area at the time, had gone on with their professions and in the world of education and business and they were all very successful. And they moved to California also and they started looking at me and talking to me about my drinking. And I um, <clears throat> didn't like that. You know, I don't like people telling me I drink too much. There's that terrible fear inside of me. I already knew that, but I couldn't let you know that. And I couldn't let you know that I saw no way of me stopping drinking. I'd never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. And every one of my fair weather friends that I drank with out there for all those years are dead this morning. I've got to come to, I've come to believe that the God that I've come to believe in, you know, had other plans for me. I have learned that life is what happens to you while you make other plans. And I am standing here this morning because what I've become an alcoholic anonymous is a, ma- a messenger that there is a solution, you know, to our dilemma of this disease and so I um, 
I was, I was, I was having so much trouble trying to get my, you know, get it all together. And, and, I, and my sister said to me one day, you know, Claire, you drink too much. And it, and it really pains us to watch you. And well, why, why don't you do this and why don't you do that? And I began to see it all taken away. The internal revenue took the business, the bank took the house. That older son was 12 years older than the two younger ones. Um, and then I was standing outside the house, you know, because nobody would save me anymore. And bless their hearts, they didn't know anything about Al-Anon and that it was time to release me with love. And I believe that God was working in their lives for me and for me to get to this place. Uh, I stood outside the house and watched the marshal put the lock on the door and stood there with that older son and he looked at me with that look, but it was different. Not the little boy in Boston who was disappointed in the mother who always lied to him. But it was about an 18-year-old young man who had tears in his eyes, you know, but those tears didn't run, I guess it just wasn't macho. For an 18-year-old young man to look at a drunken mother and um, tell her he hated her. You know, I would stand there screaming inside and crying. By this time, I am crying silent tears because I don't know what else to do. And he said, I'm not going to the ghetto with you because I don't want to go down there and watch you die. I don't even know who you are. You've never been there for us. And I had no defense against that because he was telling the truth. But I remember picking up the bag and um, taking the two younger ones as he walked out of my life. And going on down here now, I'm getting into trouble after a while, ending up in hospitals. Never jail. I didn't have to go to jail. I never had to go to prison. I was a prisoner within my own body. I was jail. I was in jail all the time, looking out of my eyes into the world, and I was trapped. Um, I uh, ended up one morning in Daniel Freeman Hospital, a little area outside the ghetto of L.A. And if you look at basketball, it's the forum where the forum um, arena is. And it was one of those bright sunny mornings, one more time, my loving God trying to get my attention. And as I lay there in that hospital that Sunday morning, paramedics, people who are dedicated to saving your life when you don't want your life saved. How many times did I sit in that overstuffed chair contemplating suicide only to learn that suicide is a final solution to temporary problems? See, my solution was the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous that I believe is spiritual in principle and honoring the traditions of this program that give me a way of living that I can be proud of today. But there I am, really strapped down, and they've got the equipment on me trying to pump me back to life. Two men standing by the side of the bed, an older man who wasn't thrilling me at all. And I was uh, giving her a lot of lip. I always gave people a lot of lip when I was the most afraid. People, and if I'm really terrified, don't get too close. Because if you get too close, you're going to know how afraid I really am. And, and, and she turned and, and she left the room and the, because the police were standing at the foot of the bed and I'm, I'm just, by God's grace, I'm so happy that my family and that wonderful mother and father of mine never had to see me in that condition because they had, they had to leave me where I was. And the young man stood there and I'd become the bleeding earth angel. Because that young man couldn't have been more than 23 years old if she was a babe. I've come to believe that we're all born spiritual beings and we search for life and our humanness in this journey. And there she was looking down at me with this habit on, just this part of her face, a gray habit. She had the bluest eyes and her eyes were as blue as the heavens. And she started to cry and her tears fell on the covering of that bed. And I looked up at her and this had been a bad one. And one more time, I, the last thing I remember was being in Hollywood the night before at another party. Still trying to be a party girl. And I remember coming in and out of that blackout where they picked me up in a black boot, kicking me in the head. And I was in the gutter between the street and the sidewalk. And the young man looked down at me and she said, how did you ever let your life get into such a state? And I couldn't answer this young man. But some, I felt something and I heard something. And, 
And I, I, I didn't re- reply, make any reply to her, but I turned my head away because I had a brain concussion. Uh, my eyes were battered, and I remember my nose was broken, was broken, and I can still remember the pain of my ribs cracking and hearing them. As I kept getting kicked in the, in, in the ribs, and you know, I know all about pain. I know about physical pain, and I know about emotional pain. And the pain has no memory. Here I am living the, the life of the Jay Walker so beautifully uh, described with total insanity in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I kept doing the same insane things over and over again with insane people and expecting a different results. Just kept doing it over and picking myself up and going right back out there to be battered. And I, um, I looked away from the young nun and three days later she was assigned to dress me. You should have seen her. That in those days, how they treated the, the, the crack ribs is they put gauze around your body and two and a half inch white adhesive tape. And they'd roll the tape off the roller around your body so tight you couldn't stand up straight. So here I am leaning over, this young man's trying to dress me. She puts my bad little jacket over my shoulders and she looks at the wig. And she's kind of pushing it around, <laughs> trying to find out where the bones went, you know. And she got the bones over here about halfway over this side, and she patted me on the head, and she said, you look okay. <laughs> and um, we walked to the front of that hospital, and we stood outside Daniel Freeman Hospital, and the spiritual being that she is put her arms around me with the kind of compassion and the kind of love that I never knew that another human being could have for another human being until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. And she said to me quietly, don't drink today, dear. But I'm an alcoholic and I shuffle off in extreme physical pain and went to the middle liquor store and if that isn't insanity, tell me what it is. And I walked right in there and put my little money up and got my wine. It was about three weeks later on a, on a, on a, on a dirty floor in another feeding position, April 9, 1974. By the grace of God, I got to my first meeting with Alcoholics Anonymous that night, and it's been 24 years, and um, let's see, a month and some days ago, you know, from that first meeting. But I remember coming to on that floor that morning, and I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, as I said. But what I believe happened to me was a divine intervention. Simply kissed me gently and said, Child, get off the floor. You don't have to live like an animal again. And I stood up in the dirty room, and it's just I'm just grateful that there was no stranger in that room, because you know alcoholism has no gender. There's an alcoholic recovering alcoholic woman. I know what alcoholic women go through, you know, in the demoralization of our very soul. And I stood there in that room, and I said, God, please. Not the God that I'd always flirted around with and not quite believed in. I said, God, please don't let me die. And I've come to believe in prayer and the power of prayer. And I keep it simple. And it was I was asking for help for my life and, and I didn't understand that life that prayers are answered. I called a friend who told about Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, uh, and she said, she's not an alcoholic, she's still my friend over 30 some years. She said, I don't know what they do, but they get sober there. And she said, they stay sober. And she said, uh, call them. And she said, we've been praying for you. And, um, and I'm, I'm glad to know that you want to get some help for yourself. I called central office that morning. The man said, good morning, this is Alcoholics Anonymous. May I help you? And I said, yes. Uh, my name is Claire and I can't stop drinking, you know, and the truth was finally out. What I learned through, the, you know, through those 12 steps of recovery for us is that the truth will set you free. You know, and I, you know, and I had never ever been able to tell the truth. And this man said, um, well, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous, dear. He said, don't drink today. Well, you know, for an intellectual like me, that seemed kind of far-fetched. How can you go, how can you go a whole day without a drink? Well, I've been drinking 27 years every day. And you know, one of my greatest fears when I got into Alcoholics Anonymous and did something inventory on, you know, I found out that my greatest fear was, I always knew that something was wrong with my drinking, but my fear, my greatest fear was, how do you live sober? And that kept me a long time from admitting, you know, that I didn't think it was possible that I could live sober. Um, 
So uh, he said, well, you know, we go to meetings here, and he said, uh, you know, uh, and he, I'll tell you my story. And I say to him, such arrogance and such ego, I said to him, well, do you have meetings in Beverly Hills? <laughs> and he said, yes, we do, but the meeting you're going to is right near you in your neighborhood. And, uh, that's where I went. Um, so I remember getting dressed that morning for my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Hope I never had that experience again. Uh, I remember the kids, if that morning for the first time in a long time, I was still up when my kids got out of bed and came out of that dirty bedroom and were in that kitchen. I was standing there and I helped them get their breakfast this morning. You should have seen them cutting their eyes at me because you know, I hadn't been in there for a long time. And, uh, and, uh, and I felt good about myself because somehow I had, had a feeling of hope. The newcomers, that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about, it's about hope. And this stranger had told me I didn't have to drink that day. And I don't know how, I, I, I grasped it, and I realized that it's possible. Um, they went on off to school, and I, I'm going into the closet, because I had never, I don't know what you guys are about, and I wanted to look good. So I go in the closet, I'm leaning on the door with the door open, and I'm staring in there. I got one dress, a red velvet dress that had wine stains on it, and I'm trying to make a decision. <laughs> or what to wear. <laughs> get the dress out, clean up the wine stains, get the wig out, put it on their head form, got a brush, cleaned it up. I, you know, I've been hiding out of that wig for years, and... And I cut some better bangs, and he got some hairspray, sprayed it up, boofed her up a little bit. She looked good, you know. <laughs> I don't know about detox, and I didn't know the language. What I've learned here is Alcoholics Anonymous is indeed the language of the heart. And I, um, so I started, my body started perspiring and jerking. You know, I'm, I'm withdrawing, and I don't know that's what's happening in my body, but... I'm struggling not to walk up, you know, like past three houses down to the liquor store. So around two o'clock in the afternoon, I can't stand the pain, so I decide to go over Woolworth to just to browse, just not to go to the liquor store. So while I'm browsing, I stole some eyelashes. <laughs> and they come quite long, and I didn't know you supposed to trim them. So I got these eyelashes, I put them under my bad leather jacket, and I go back to the, to the, to, to where I live. It was, um, it was an eight o'clock meeting. I borrowed my brother's car to go to my first meeting. Seven o'clock, I'm standing in front of the mirror, perspiration just pouring down my face. I'm jerking like a motor, and, uh, and I need, those lashes come with a little tube of glue. And I've got them in, I'm trying to get the glue along the edge of the lash. You know, and I'm shaking so bad, I can't get it together. I finally get it down to the end. I grab my elbow. I wait <laughs> for an opportune moment. And I slam it in, you know. And one end is up here and one end is down there. I'm too tired to start all over. I lean in the mirror. I say, you are looking good. <laughs> and I went off to my first meeting of alcohol and <laughs> And I sat in the chair that night, you know, and uh, they said, get a cup of coffee. And in those days, they had real cups. And uh, I filled it too full, and I, and I, I left it on the table because I didn't want you to see me shaking. And I'm sitting on my hands, and I'm bouncing in the chair. And I took a quick glimpse of my life, and what I realized is that alcohol had stripped me of all human dignity. It has stripped me of all moral values and all family values and all Christian values that I certainly had heard when I was growing up in that wonderful home. And somehow I'd missed that. Um, they started the meeting and asked the hands of a newcomer, and I didn't know what a newcomer was. The lady behind me touched me on my shoulder and said, raise your hands, I'm a newcomer. And at the, at the coffee break, she gave me her name on a piece of paper said, my name is Carol. And this is my phone number, and she said she was she was holding me a little bit distance with her hands on on my shoulders, and she said, "Go home and call me, and I'll tell you what Alcoholics Anonymous is about." And you know, by this time I had wine sores on my body, and I had fluid on my knees and on my ankles, and I could hardly walk from the pain of the you know of the weight of my legs. And I could see in her eyes, you know, uh, what she felt for my pain. 
And I look in your eyes and I look in your eyes and remember Alcoholics Anonymous today. I realize that when I look in your eyes, I'm looking into the window of your very soul. And I can see and feel your love for me. You don't even have to know my last name. All you want to know from me is, do I want to stay sober today? And that's what she said to me. Don't drink it. Go home and call me. And she's still my sober, this, my, my sponsor this morning. She's been my sponsor all these years, not only my sponsor, my confidant and my friend and my spiritual teacher. She put me in those steps, there were about 20 of us newcomers in those days, and meetings were a lot smaller than they are now, and we hung together. And we supported each other. We went out, we went 12, 13, 14 meetings a week. I was not employable. Um, my sponsor set up a list of meetings that I was to go to, and I wasn't, we didn't have to, we didn't ask questions when I got sober. We just did what we were told to do, and it saved all of our lives. And out of that 20, five had passed away of natural causes, and the other 15 are still sober. Not one of us has ever gone out. We do what we do, and we do what we were taught to do to, to be of service, because that would keep us that would keep us sober. We were to study the, the book and live the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and all of our affairs. And you know, and, 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 and things got better. I had to get a job because my sponsor said I had to, and I wasn't thrilled about that too much. <laughs> Uh, and uh, she said, we are self-supporting to our own contribution. You get a job. You know, I had such a huge ego. I didn't, you know, I thought with my background and all that fancy stuff and that great, you know, education I was didn't finish and all this stuff. And I, um, so I went out and I said, but I don't know what to, how to work. She said, well, somebody will teach you. So I went and got a job as a waitress. I was a terrible waitress. I had bad attitude. <laughs> And I would go to my home group and whine. You know, my sponsor said to me one time, she said, you know, I want to tell you something I've learned in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous Club. You can't be grateful and whine at the same time. And she said, in order, in order to be grateful, you've got to do what, what's in front of you to do and do it with a good spirit. And so um, uh, I was sure show up that job. I had to I spilled a lot of coffee on a lot of people. And I whined in my home, in my home group about it. And they said to me one day, why don't you change your attitude? And I thought, that might be a good idea. So I, I changed my attitude. I started getting tips. You know, by the time I was three years sober, uh, I went back into that business. I drank away. I have my company today for 21 years. And what I do is property management and maintenance. I have old contracts with the, in service to the homes and movie stars and, and political giants in Los Angeles area. And I do big office buildings. And, and I started to see, you know, the, the, the promises come through in my life. I saw that little daughter of mine, and I made my amends to those kids. You know, my sponsor had me sit down and make those amends. My sponsor sent me, I'm a double winner. I'm a member also of Al-Anon. And my sponsor sent me to Al-Anon my first five years. You know, and so that I could learn to, to, to release my guilt and my, what I was doing with my family. In the family after, read the big book, study the book, talk about the family after. So I was um, uh, getting on with my life and getting well, and that little daughter of mine went into the ice capades as the first black professional female uh, skater with Dorothy Hamill, and uh, the grandparents had, had paid for all that expensive training, uh, and I saw that was wonderful. For me, five years sober, sitting in, you know, flying to New York and sitting in Madison Square Garden and seeing that daughter of mine out on that ice, and that's the little girl that I couldn't go to her PTA meeting. You know, and it all, it was all turning around. And when I was seven years old, that son of mine, uh, who went to that ghetto, he, um, he attempted suicide, you know, and I, I had a lot of problems, you know, releasing him because of my own guilt. And I wouldn't, he wouldn't go to school, he wouldn't work, and he wanted to sit and look at TV and give me a shopping list for his best foods that he enjoyed. And I couldn't get past, you know, I couldn't get past saying, you know, my sponsor and my my group says, you have got to put him out of your house. I said, but I can't do that. They said, then what, what's your choice? You're going to have resentments, which is our number one offender, or you're going to drink. Which one are you going to do? I decided, you know, he's got to go. <laughs> so I prayed about it. You know, and one day, you know, I had to do that. I had to put him out on that front porch. Take, you know, and take, and take, I packed his luggage, man, that was a real job. <laughs> packed his luggage, sat him on the front porch, called him locksmith, and then locksmith showed up, and he's standing on the, and looking at me, 18 year old, and I, 
well, where am I going to go? I said, I don't know. It's the Salvation Army helped people, you know. <laughs> and you know, you know, today he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous because he attempted suicide while he was out there. And today he's a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And now he says, Mother, it's the best thing you ever did for me. You made me grow up when I really didn't want to. And I, you know, was like the eagle. I shoved him out of the nest. And I want to tell you, you're talking about self-esteem and I, that God answers prayer, you know. And so... Uh, uh, and that old son, I saw him go into, um, you know, the uh, theater um, uh, uh, profession and career. And uh, and a lot of other things were happening for me in, in, in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I had gotten into service. Uh, when I was about, uh, let's four years sober, um, I was uh, dancing around my house. I bought this new car now, and I bought a nice little beautiful little Spanish house that I still live in. And you know, something about the insanity of our disease when we start to get well. Very dangerous when you're four and five and six years sober getting well. When everything else takes, you know, priority over your program and alcoholics anonymous. And that's what I was doing, lying to my sponsor. You know, there's something about the truth I just said, you know, they'll set you free, but insanity will bring it back again. And uh, I'm dancing around my room, one, uh, my house one, one Saturday afternoon. I had a call in the central office. And the message said, uh, the lady said, you know, uh, Clara said, you know, uh, this is central office calling and we'd like for you to take a 12-step call. In those days, we did a lot of 12-step work. And I was going on with other people and other pounds, but I'd never been asked to do one. So I said, uh, I wasn't thrilled with this idea, you know, because I'm too busy now. I'm, I'm running to jazz clubs after the meetings and keeping those secrets. I don't want my sponsor to know I'm doing this. And so I said, well, uh, I had always heard that you don't uh, turn down an AA request. So I took the information, and I was hemming and hawing, and this, you know, the lady in the central office really was annoyed with me. She said, oh, stop it. She said, uh, just take your address and the name. It's a hotel on Skid Row in downtown L.A. And we got this call from this young woman, and she's in this hotel, and she needs help. So I, I hung up the phone with all the information, called my sponsor. I said, Carol, I just had a call from Central Office. And I said, they want me to do a trust that call, and I don't want to do it. And she said, well, I don't care what you don't want to do. She said, you do it anyway, and she hung up. And um, so I was sponsoring this little Hollywood actress. I'd always heard you don't go on a trust that call alone. I'm not like you, I'm going to trust that call alone. And so I um, called this little actress. She had 90 days. I get on the phone, I call Beverly Hills. I said, we're going on a trust that call. She said, where? I said, it's down on Skid Row. She said, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I said, I don't care what you don't want to do. I said, you get over here. So we go to my big Eldorado, we go downtown, and we find this hotel. I, you know, they told me there was no marquee out there. It was just a, a number above the hotel, and uh, it was not part of the Hilton chain, I tell you that. <laughs> so we go into this lobby, and it changed my life. That 12-step call changed my life, and I'll call it synonymous. But I see the sense. God gave me the opportunity to see the disease at its worst. Mine had been behind drawn drapes. But here on the floor in this dirty hotel was a 21-year-old, year blonde, gorgeous young girl in a theme position on the floor in a room. I'm not good at figures, about six by eight little room. Filthy, the stench I can still remember. Water bugs were so huge that they, when you walk around in the room, this little actress and I were both looking at each other. You could hear them crunching as we walked. She was on the floor and she was turning blue because she was, was gagging on her own vomit. She couldn't swallow it and it wouldn't go out. And we didn't know anything about, you know, we turned her over and we just pushed her and it popped out. And it was like, you know, we talk about the 12 step having a spiritual awakening as a result of the steps. And that's exactly what I was having, a spiritual awakening. I, how easy it is to forget where I'd been. And I was apt to go there again, and I'm still, I'm just one drink away from going to that place again. 
We picked her up and it all cutesy stuff was over and we dressed her and we took her further into Skid Row. We called Central Office and they told us where to take her and her name, and her name was Dorothy and, and she stayed there for about 10 days and then we, you know, we, uh, and I would go down every night after work because I was no longer too busy. I've never been to a jazz club after a meeting since that time. I got involved in, in Alcoholics Anonymous. I started meetings on Skid Row and I got into complete service. And I remember sitting across from her that night in that diner and talking about Alcoholics Anonymous as if, and, and knowing now that it was coming from my heart instead of my head. I talked about the first step, which is a statement of the disease. As Dr. Silkworth gave that first step to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, to this fellowship, and that I am powerless over alcohol and, my, and your life is unmanageable. And I shared that with her. She, she could agree with that. I talked about the second step and that God would restore us to sanity. She told me that everybody in her family had died or were dying of alcoholism or drug addiction. And I got to the third step and I said, we make a decision to turn our will and our lives over God. And she said, don't you talk to me about God. And I think I had some unresolved anger. Because <laughs> I reached over and pulled her clothes, going to punch her lights out. <laughs> the book says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of the step, we tried, the word is tried, we try to carry the message. Does not say beat them up. <laughs> and so I let her go. <laughs> and I don't know where Dorothy is this morning, but Dorothy will never know that she's the earth angel that God put there for me to see. That young actress is also still sober and very active in the entertainment world. And um, uh, I got on. My son called me. He was by this time working in television done some very wonderful work, very talented, gorgeous young man. And we made our peace in many years of it as a result of this program. I've made my peace and my closure with my kids early on. I try to live the example of Alcoholics Anonymous in their lives and those around me. I learned early on also that, um, that I, I learned and can come to believe this, that alcohol stood in the way of my usefulness to God and to my fellows and the people I love. And now I spend my time as an example, you know, of this program. He was working for ABC Television in New York in the early 80s. And he called me one, one day and he said, Mom, I'm having a lot of trouble. He didn't say what it was. I was later to find out he'd gotten into shooting cocaine when cocaine came out on the streets. And it was fashionable in his world, in his television world. He did the news, and he worked for some of, even now, the big anchors who are still on television today. Um, and he was um, shooting cocaine, sharing a needle at lunchtime in the big conferences. And at the, you know, Disco 54 and all those fancy places, I hung out with the mob and the jazz, and in the gates of the jazz world, and he's hanging out in his, his area shooting cocaine and sharing a needle. He, he, when his contract was over, he moved back to Los Angeles, got married, and had a little son. And I have a little grandson now, and his name is Aaron. And God's given me a second chance, because I'm always there for Aaron. And, you know, and, and later on we found that after the divorce, the marriage didn't last, about two or three years later, you know, my son was teaching um, um, in, in the San Francisco area, theater arts. And he called me one day and said, Mother, I went to the doctor today for some strange reason. I, I'd just not been feeling well. And he said, I can't believe, but the, but the test came back and I'm HIV positive. And it took the breath out of me. Oh my God, this is not supposed to be. And that was another time when, you know, that was a death. That was a, that was a sign of death and the cross was put right on you. And I did what I do. I got on my knees and I prayed to my God. God granted me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom is the word to know the difference. And I did what all you earth angels did, did for me. You know, you came around and you were there. And I, two days later I was on a plane. I have a big crew of people who work for me and I, my daughter's taken over my business and, and she has happily married with a wonderful home and a little daughter and, and she took over the commercial office buildings and medical centers that I do. And she uh, <clears throat> took over the business. I flew to San Francisco and I walked the streets with my son. 
and we'd already had closure. And we put our arms around each other, and I told him how sorry I was. I'd never been there for him when he was a little boy. But I'd also said that when I made my amends to him. And we, we, it was all in love. And, you know, he said, I'm well enough to take care of myself. Nineteen months later was that other call. Mother, I'm too sick. I can't, can't take care of myself anymore. And it's time for me to die. And I'm coming home. Thank God I had a home for him to come to. You know, by the grace of God, pulling out alcoholics and numbers and you earth angels, I had a home for him. He came home, and I had weeks to sit by his bed, and we talked. One of the greatest compliments my son could have given me on his dying bed was, Mother, I love alcoholics anonymous. He's <clears throat> given us the mother we always wanted and the lady we always knew you could be. And, you know, on that awful morning, you know, you know at 10.15 on a Saturday morning, my sponsees and my sponsor and were standing around that bed in the family, my daughter and my other son. And he had requested that we sing this song to help him cross that bridge. And you know, when I grew up in Georgia, I used to sing in the junior choir in that Union Baptist Church. And we used to sing a song that the slaves used to sing in the fields of Georgia about dying and going to heaven. And they knew that God was going to greet them by saying, sit down, child, I know you're tired. And rest a while. And my son said, I've done everything. And he said, I'm young. I've had the very best that life offers and traveled. And he said, it's time to go, and I want to go sit down and rest a while. And that grasping sound of death, and then it was silent, and he was gone. Been a lot of grief, and I guess it's been my, my time in these last five years to learn to deal with grief. I don't think you ever learn to deal with it. You learn to live with it. And God in time takes care of the healing. And I'm sure with you and your loved ones and the ones of you lost in the program and friends, I pray that all of their souls rode the wings of angels to a higher place. Where there's no more crying, there's no more dying, and there's no more pain. And we will all go there sober. You know, thank you for this moment. And I can sh come and share my life with you and my hope. And if you're new, keep coming back. The solution is here for you. Because it was here for me. And it's rooms like this that you rendered me sober. And you rendered me sane. And for that, by the grace of God, I am eternally grateful. And I thank you.